0: Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. Simon, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Let me start off by saying that I've very much been looking forward to speaking with you about your new book, Pattern Seekers, How Autism Drives Human Invention. But before we dive into your new book, for anyone who's listening who might not be familiar, what exactly is autism? I would love to know how you define it. What does it look like? And what are the criteria for a diagnosis? Hmm.
1: So first of all, thank you for inviting me to join you on your podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So in terms of how we define autism, um, it's recognized as a neurodevelopmental disability. So that's to say it's you know it, it starts early in development. It affects the way the, the brain is wired. Um, and in terms of behavior, these are individuals um, who have trouble with social relationships and with communication. That's one side. They also develop these very narrow interests. So they have they have a preference to go deeply into topics, not superficially like the rest of us. Uh, they struggle with unexpected change, and they often have sensory issues. So they're kind of hypersensitive to touch, to taste, to sounds, to light um you know and we recognize it as a disability because it it really can lead to individuals struggling in the social world but you know in the right environment maybe we'll come on to this you also see their strengths their cognitive strengths that they think differently and some of their strengths are are talents
0: absolutely absolutely and the topic of your new book is really showing that these talents have been driving human invention throughout history.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it, might, it may be worth mentioning just because there will be families out there mm-hmm. um, who have a, a relative who's autistic, that uh, sometimes it's hard to see the talents because the autistic person not only has autism, the way we've just described it, but also has additional disabilities like learning difficulties, um, language delay, sometimes medical issues like epilepsy. Um, But if you just kind of focus on the autism itself, separate to learning difficulties or to language delay, you can see these talents and and they exist across individuals right across that spectrum.
0: Right. And this is exactly that overlap of autism with hyper-systemizing, where you really took you know, everything that you've described about autism and you've created this framework of yeah. how to think about how, how these individuals are wired through the systemizing mechanism yeah. Yeah. and the empathy circuit and mm. the differences between these and how they operate. So can yeah. you give us a little bit of context on those?
1: Yeah, sure. So in my new book, The Pattern Seekers, I kind of, uh, I, I propose a theory Which is that the brain, the human brain, evolved two new mechanisms or circuits. Uh, One of them is kind of, um, it evolved to understand the social world, and that's the empathy circuit. So it allows us to put ourselves into someone else's shoes and imagine another person's thoughts, intentions, uh, beliefs, and and feelings, most importantly. Uh, But the other circuit, Uh, which I call the systemizing mechanism, evolved for us to be able to understand how things work, particularly objects in the physical world, but systems more generally, which might be abstract systems like mathematics or music. It might be natural systems like the weather um, or the wings of a butterfly. Uh, it, It could be collectible systems. You know, sometimes we collect uh, individual items because they're part of a set. Um, So systems come in all kinds of varieties. might be mechanical systems like a computer or a car engine Um, or before the industrial age, it might have been a mechanism uh, like a a bow and arrow or a tool. Uh, But the systemizing mechanism, uh, it allows us to analyze how things work in terms of lawful regularities. I call them if-and-then patterns. Right. That if I take something and I do something to it, then I get a particular outcome. So it's if-and-then. And And, uh, in in the book, I, I argue that both of these circuits, the empathy circuit and the systemizing mechanism, are unique to humans. You can see some kind of maybe... Simple precursors to them in other species, but Homo sapiens, modern humans, uh, evolved these circuits at least one hundred thousand years ago.
0: Right, and I, I'd like to get into that at some point as well of where what you think sparked the cognitive revolution. But before before we get into it you know, I think there's something in systems where you have these um, set of objects, right? And they all operate together. And the question is, how do they operate together? And defining the boundaries of the system. And it takes such cognitive power to make sense of it and to also ignore the other variables. Because yeah. nothing is really... um I don't know, a perfect or completely orderly in our world, but to be able to zoom in and to really make sense of that and to use that if-and-then pattern to really get into the details and see how if I move one factor over, one variable, that the system changes, there's incredible power in that.
1: Yeah, so the way you've just been describing it, it sounds incredibly complicated, but Actually, we see young kids doing this all the time. So, uh, and we'll come back to autism in a minute, but, you know, often young autistic kids get fascinated by systems, but you you see them playing with them, experimenting with them. So it might be, let's say, the light switch is in the house, where they want to know, you know, if I push the light switch and I push it into the down position, then this particular light goes on. And they start becoming fascinated by what's controlling the hallway light, the bedroom light, the living room light, and all the different switches in the house. So they're playing with kind of an electrical system in the house. But they're doing no. it, you know, and and you're right. They are trying they're just they're taking one variable at a time. And you know, often they don't want somebody else to come along and push a light switch into a different position because then they can't keep track of. What's controlling what? What's causing what? So this is causal thinking. you know but, right. and another very simple example would be with music. You know, the first musical instrument, or the earliest one that's been found is about forty thousand years ago, and it was a, a flute made from a hollow bone of a bird where there are holes in drilled into the bone. and if we can see the if and then you know pattern recognition. If I blow down the hollow bone and I cover one hole, then I get this note. But if I blow down the hollow bone and cover two holes, then I get a different note. So you can see that you know, music is a system. The instrument itself is a, a, a complex tool, a system. But kids, kids know how to experiment. You know They'll play with the patterns. But you don't, right. see, you don't see that in other species.
0: Right. This is something that's uniquely human. And you spoke in your book about how um, other animals are able to, you know, they do associative learning. Yeah. They can pick on all, up on all sorts of things um, if, you know, reward is related, but yeah. th- that they don't do this experimenting that we, we do.
1: Yeah, exactly. So associative learning is widespread in the animal kingdom, you know, from rats to pigeons to bears, you know, lots of animals do right. it. Uh, partic- you know, and that's really just associating A with B. Um, you know, that, um, uh, if I, if I push the lever, I get food, but it's just pushing the lever, getting a reward. Um, and it's often kind of motivated by some external reward. You know, what's interesting about human kids and adults is that often the reward is intrinsic. There's no, you don't get a chocolate at the end of it. Right. You're just experimenting because you're, you're curious to know how the system works. Maybe to get control over the system. Maybe there's some pleasure about, you know, producing that riff in music or, or getting the same number, you know, when you try to solve an equation. Uh, you know, seeing the pattern over and over again, that you realize you've found a pattern, you've understood the system. That becomes like an intrinsic reward
0: absolutely. having making sense of the world around us or being able to control and manipulate like with music it, it's itself uh, rewarding and I think very much kind of describes the difference between humans and animals, where yeah. we, we can get into these very cognitive spaces or
1: you know and the, and the idea very simply is that when we experiment with these if and then patterns. If we come up with a new pattern, that that is an invention. So, you know, part of the question I addressed in my book is, you know, how do we explain the very human capacity for unlimited invention? You know, I call it generative invention. We don't just like invent once, but we seem to be inventing all the time. And, uh, you know, we've just invented a vaccine you know, but, you know, there's kind of new technology coming out all the time. I know that um, you're Israeli. Yes. And, you know, (laughs) Israel is known as like, sometimes known as like the startup nation. Exactly. Lots of people just kind of inventing and experimenting all the time with what can we do with tools. But this goes right back at least 100,000 years.
0: Yeah. You know, when, when I was reading your book, one of the things that kind of struck me was that I always wondered how, you know, how humans back in the day, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, how did they think of all of these inventions? You know, you hear about inventions like the wheel or sails and building ships or how do you know to eat this plant, uh, for this ailment and not that other plant? Yeah. Uh, and it's quite amazing to, to think that this is even possible. And then when you realize that we have these individuals as a part of any society that are hyper systemizers and that this systemizing mechanism Mm. is, you know, tuned up to the extreme. So I'd love for us to get into that a bit of the types of brains that you saw because we have these two circuits but they manifest in different, yeah, to different degrees.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so both with empathy and with systemizing, uh, what we found is that these skills fall on a bell curve in the population. So most of us are just average. Some people are below average. And then, as you've said, some people are above average. They're, they're hyper-systemizers or maybe hyper-empathizers. And... Uh, the way we found this out was we used two questionnaires, the systemizing quotient and the empathy quotient. So for short, it's the SQ and the EQ. But we um, we we gave these questionnaires online to a large population, 600,000 people. And what we found is that you can divide any population. Uh, this very big population seems to be representative of what we've seen in many different cultures. You can divide the population into five brain types. So some, okay. people, some people lean more towards empathy than systemizing. We call that type E. And some people show the opposite profile. They lean more towards systemizing relative to their empathy. So we call that type S. Uh, there's a third brain type which where, where individuals are pretty much balanced. So we call that type B. They're as good at systemizing as they are at empathy. And then there are the extremes. So people who systemize nonstop, but who may struggle with empathy. So we call that extreme type S. Uh, And vice versa. So people who seem to empathize nonstop, they're always worrying about what other people are thinking and what they're feeling. And their radar is switched on to you know right. what everyone is 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 think, thinking and feeling, but they may struggle with with understanding systems, uh, and we call those individuals extreme type E. So, this, so these five brain types exist in any population,
0: right? And what do you? Why do you think there is this kind of zero sum relationship between the brain types yeah. between the two circuits?
1: Yeah. So it's it's zero sum in the sense that we do find the better you are at one, the more you struggle with the other. Right. Um, You know, it is is actually, you know, it's it's a minority of people who are equally good at both. You know, most people lean towards one direction or the other. And that may have been for reasons of natural selection. So if genes were involved in empathy and in systemizing, it may be that natural selection has favored individuals who specialize more in one direction or the other. So, if you've got good empathy, it's likely that you'll be good at navigating the social world. If you've got good systemizing, it's likely that you'll be able to take apart any object and very quickly see its components and figure out how to reassemble it, but maybe reassemble it in a new way so that you can make better or more efficient tools uh, or tools that have new functions. Either way, both of these skills could have uh, advantages, be adaptive, for survival.
0: Right, and you you also mentioned the fact that they do need to operate together, in a sense, because when you're inventing something new, you still need to have enough empathy to understand, is this useful for people? Will people like it? Yeah. Right? There is this um, relationship yeah. between the two.
1: I, I think ideally, um, I, either within the same individual, you know, someone who's an inventor uh, might be great at systemizing, but if they if they lose lose sight of who is this invention for, you know, if they don't think about the the user, um, the market, if you like, um, they may invent something that nobody wants or nobody cares about. So right. it is it is quite good to keep you know to keep uh, keep in mind the other person. Um, right. But you, sometimes you get that skill set distributed across a team. So you'll have the inventor who's in his or her garden shed or in their lab coming up with, you know, new, new systems. Excuse me. But you might have somebody else on the team who's much more focused on the end user and whether they actually are, are going to find it attractive, find it useful.
0: I think this is what is so amazing about understanding personality because it gives you that kind of language and awareness for what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses and what are the yeah. people around you, what are they good at? And yeah. it helps you kind of tune in, you know, to other perspectives and to really to really get that balance yeah. because we don't all need to be good at everything, right? And if oh, absolutely.
1: You do- absolutely. And I think employers are increasingly recognizing, you know, there's this concept of neurodiversity. right. You know that there's actually it actually makes good business sense to have a team with individuals with different profiles, different cognitive strengths and challenges. But you know that if you include that whole spectrum, the different brain types I just described, you know that's that's likely to increase the chances of of uh, different ways of thinking, thinking out of the box, but making sure it's relevant to the customer. Um, so you know, leading to innovation that's actually you know what 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 people want,
0: right? Right, and I wanted to get into as well the fact that we see these um, these different distributions also within the sexes, right? There yeah. is this sex difference element, and yeah. in um, one of your earlier books, *The Essential Difference*, you very plainly lay out that men are predominantly hardwired for understanding and building systems mm-hmm. while women are predominantly hardwired for empathy and i I'd, I'd love f- first yeah. of all to hear how how you found this
1: sure so um i would slightly rephrase it compared to how you said it cuz i okay. would well well so i would just add two little words which is on average okay but when you compare groups of males and groups of females, on average, you find these differences. Yes. You know, and the, although it's just two little words, uh, t- they turn out but to be... But they're
0: very important in this context.
1: Yeah, because it's very easy for people, readers or listeners to, um, to kind of misinterpret some of these claims as if it's a bit like, you know, men are from Mars and women yeah. are from It's not like all men do one thing and all women do another. It's just that on average, you find that there, you know, there are more people of type E, that's empathizers, among females. And uh, there are more individuals of type S, systemizers, amongst males. But this is just kind of on average. When we did that big study of 600,000 people, we did find these differences. Um, I, I should also have mentioned that as well as the 600,000 individuals, who did, didn't have a, an autism diagnosis. We were also able to include 36,000 autistic people. So it was kind of big data.
0: Okay. Like, you
1: know, it's, I think one of the largest studies of autism that's taken place. Um, and what we found with them is that they were more likely to have a, a brain of type S or even extreme type S. And again, it's just kind of likelihood. It doesn't apply to every individual. But they, as a group, they seem to be shifted along that um, that bell curve.
0: Right, we're seeing some sort of correlation with yeah. uh you know, hypersystemizers and and autism. And
1: the other clue we got was that um, if you took the six hundred thousand people and divided them into those who work in STEM, okay, versus those who don't work in STEM, those who work in STEM interestingly, had uh, a higher score on the autism spectrum quotient, the AQ, which measures how many autistic traits we each have. What,
0: what kind of yes. questions show up in that kind of questionnaire?
1: Um, so some of the questions are social questions, like whether you'd prefer to spend your time in a library or in a party. Some of them, okay. are, some of them are questions about attention to detail. Like whether you would um, uh, notice if one digit changed in somebody's phone number.
0: Okay. You know, Interesting.
1: Uh, some of them are questions to do with how easily you can switch from one topic to another. So if you're concentrating and suddenly there's a phone call, can you make can you make the switch to doing a different activity, or does that cause stress?
0: That that would be harder for autistic individuals. Oh, yes? Certainly. Okay.
1: So, so they have they have excellent attention to detail. They would notice if a little digit changed, but they would also be more likely to say, yes, I would struggle if I had to switch unexpectedly to a new activity. Uh, so there's just, and, you know, some of the items are to do with communication, um, okay. you know, whether, whether you can easily read between the lines to pick up on a hint when somebody is talking or whether you need things much more explicit and spelt out. So just different items, and each one is like an autistic trait.
0: Interesting. And yeah. and these do manifest on a sort of spectrum.
1: Again, it's on a bell curve. Um, right. You know, like everything, like height, you know, um, like language ability. You know, a lot of these things that, you know, they're you, you find average levels, and then you find individuals who are above or below the average.
0: Right, and I think, I think this is really important because when we see the fact that autistic people are, it, it's something that we see mostly in the male population, I think this is really important to understand this idea of averages and normal yeah. distributions because when we see, for instance, the systemizing mechanism, yeah. right, and the systemizing brain type, and yeah. we see the distribution of that in... The male population and the female population, yeah. there's a lot of overlap, right? We can Absolutely. definitely find a woman who's more of a systemizer than Absolutely. a particular man who's yeah. more of an empathizer. But yeah. what's really interesting when we look at averages is while there's mostly overlap, the extreme tail ends is yeah. that's where the interesting stuff happens. And when we see that, you know, autism is related to hyper systemizing. It it very much makes sense why the most systemizing individuals in society are going to be men, and then why we see
1: autism yeah. affecting mostly, yeah. mostly men. I mean, I think I think uh, you know the story is complicated. Um, so you're absolutely right that when we look at the autism population, more males than females get diagnosed. It's about three males for every one female. But people kind of question, is that because you know, there's stigma in, the, in, in our culture so that maybe girls are less likely to seek a diagnosis, or women to seek a diagnosis? Maybe they even you try think so?: to, uh, Increasingly, there's evidence that, that women are really trying to hide their autism, if it's there, and even young girls, that there may be more pressure on girls to kind of be sociable, be communicative that maybe our culture expects girls to to be better at conversation and to have friends and if you struggle with those things you might feel an you know an increased pressure to hide it and that can be very stressful
0: that that surprises me because i think you you could you, like that's that sounds reasonable but on the other hand i would think that because women are expected to be more sociable if you're unable to read social cues you're going to stick out i think it yeah. would be even even harder to hide it it yeah. would be even more noticeable so yeah. so i wonder because this
1: yeah. I, yeah so so i you know i i set up a clinic for adults who are seeking a, a late diagnosis of autism right because, because for whatever reason they'd been overlooked in their childhood or in their teens uh, and many of the women who came to the clinic talk about First of all, copying another girl in, in their class at school. So identifying, identifying a girl who seems very popular and very sociable.
0: And systemizing her behavior.
1: Systemizing her <laughs> behavior, really. And it, it kind of works to a certain point. Yeah. You know, you know, but it's very tiring. It's not intuitive. It's not natural. It takes a lot of effort. It's like being an actor. And when you Absolutely. get, home, you know, and what they describe is when they get home, they can actually be themselves. Wow! If, if they, you know, they they, as it turns out, they have autism. They are autistic, but they've been hiding it relatively successfully, but at some cost. You know, it's it's exhausting, and it, and it causes anxiety, uh, maybe other mental health challenges. But so there might be some of these cultural factors, but equally there might be some biological factors like genetics, and like hormones.
0: Right,
1: right, I want hormones.
0: exactly, because there is this idea of autism being an extreme male brain. And the question is why even call it that? But really there is this uh, testosterone element that you found.
1: Yeah, so we've we've conducted several studies um, in collaboration with a biobank in Denmark, in Copenhagen, where they have a collection of amniotic fluid. So this is the fluid that surrounds the baby during pregnancy. Wow. And sometimes it's, it's extracted or collected um, to, to do testing, prenatal testing, often for things like Down syndrome. But we've been able to look at the horm- hormone levels in that fluid uh, in relation to kids who later went on to receive a diagnosis of autism what we found was elevated levels of testosterone and also another another sex hormone estrogen in the pregnancies of babies who later were diagnosed with autism so
0: okay and how how do you make sense of that the fact that they're both elevated
1: uh very simple which is that testosterone is converted into estrogen some people okay. have this idea that you know one is more the Female hormone; right. whether it's more male, but actually, the higher your levels of testosterone, the higher your levels of estrogen too. And both of these hormones, yeah, both of these hormones have a so-called masculinizing effect on the brain prenatally. So that's been demonstrated through animal research, where you can manipulate the hormones, kind of like systemizing what do these hormones do. Yes, <laughs> and then, you know, you can take a female rat or a mouse and give her extra testosterone, and it will masculinize her brain and her postnatal behavior. So these hormones are very, um, they're having uh, masculinizing effects. Obviously, that would be unethical to do these experiments in humans, but what we could do in the human case was simply observe these associations that autistic people as a group um, have a higher, they're associated with having higher levels of prenatal, sex steroid hormones. But we also mm-hmm. know that autism runs in families, so there's a strong genetic element too. Um, and in all likelihood, the genes and the hormones prenatally are interacting because that another function of these hormones is that they can change gene expression. So they are epigenetic, as it's called.
0: Right. There's an element to autism where there's so many different things that are implicated in its development, right? It's not just the one gene, it's not the yeah. one hormone. There's so many things happening. Yeah. I wanted to ask you what you think of of this idea that essentially you have hyper systemizing individuals yeah. who, you know, at some point in their development or, you know, all through their development, they they suffer insults or or some or something to that effect where the neurodevelopmental disorder kind of sets in, where yeah. They're, yeah. They're, um, they're meant to be hypersystemizers, but then at, su- at some point there's an issue with the development. Is, is that something that you've seen?
1: Um, so this notion of insults um, kind of comes from the medical field of, of acquired brain damage. You know, okay. where, you, where you might have some external factor that's an insult or, a, you know, like um, it, it kind of disturbs development, you know, a bump on the head or a viral infection or some, something that changes brain development. Right. It's, it's not clear that, um, that that's what's happening in autism. No. You know, what, what we do know is there's a strong genetic element. You're right that it's not just a single gene, you know, so it's complex in terms of genetics. There's at least a hundred different genes that have been in, found in association with autism, but we think there are many many more to, yet to be discovered. and some of them are like mutations that have quite a you know significant impact. So in that sense you might call it an insult. you know it has a kind yeah. of it kind of changes the direction of development. but some of these genes are they're, they're genes that we all carry. They're called common genetic variants, but they come in different different varieties. Um, And it may just be the combination of those common genetic variants that an individual carries or inherits that kind of tips them more towards autism. And again, in in, in, um, interaction with some non-genetic factors like hormones, but other pregnancy factors, um, an example is, uh, that's been found repeatedly is gestational diabetes. So this, okay. is, this is where the woman during pe- pregnancy is gaining weight too quickly and it changes her hormonal environment in the womb, her insulin levels, which in turn affect her testosterone levels. So there could be these kind of environmental factors or non-genetic factors interacting with the genetic predisposition.
0: Right, This interaction where you, you would need, you know the, all of these things together, yeah. um, to manifest this. Yeah. I wanted to spend some time as well to speak about the hypersystemizers that you've laid out in your book, and yeah. the, to, to speak about their behavior and their interests right. and how they like to spend their lives. You speak about an uh, individual called Al in your book. So I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit about his life and, and how he liked to spend his time.
1: Yeah. So, you know, chapter one of my book opens with uh, actually describing two individuals. One's called Al, who kind of experimented nonstop with things as a child, uh, particularly a chemistry set that his parents bought him. But just, just picking up anything and experimenting with it. We learn later that this is, in fact, Thomas Edison. Right, and uh, but a lot of his behavior would have, you know, fallen into what we would look, what we would see as autistic. Uh, but he never had a diagnosis. I mean, autism wasn't recognized back then. Uh, but the other child is, um, you know, it does have a diagnosis. He's called Jonah, um, but he's also experimenting nonstop with the electrical switches, as we talked about earlier, to control the lights in the house. Uh, But he's also collecting leaves in the playground, trying to understand the different patterns in the leaves. Um, And as he gets older, uh, you know, he develops other kind of very focused interests. So, for example, car engines, where he can hear the difference between different kinds of car engines and whether they need one component tuning up or down to, to, to fix the car or to make the car run more smoothly. So um, he also, you know, um, loves fishing, and he can see from the patterns on the water where the fish are deep under under the waves. So he's able to go out with the fishermen and and point to where they're likely to catch the fish.
0: Right, and they wanted to uh, take the <laughs> take him uh, with them each time they go out. Yeah. I I think that you know there's something so amazing about this ability because as humans, you know. The world around us—we're constantly bombarded by so much input, so much data, so yeah. much information, yeah. and most of us, you know, we we learn to tune most of it out to live out our lives and to yeah. focus on the things that we're interested in, but to also uh, socialize yeah. and to be able to kind of shift gears and the the people that you're describing they're able to take all of this you know sensory data and to zoom in with such precision yeah. and to to really look at these systems in a way that most of us can't imagine because the information is there right for instance with the fish and yeah. knowing when the fish are are going to be there information is there most of us just aren't taking in
1: that
0: input. Yeah.
1: So so it does require, you know, a really good focus of attention. Uh, And maybe sometimes even ignoring what's going on socially. You know, somebody's talking to you. um, Somebody's feeling hurt. You know, maybe you have to kind of tune out a lot of that information because you just want to focus on the changing patterns in the physical world in front of you. Uh, and you know some some autistic people or hyper-systemizers um they would actually avoid some of those social situations because because they you know their empathy circuit doesn't function to the same level so they struggle to interpret someone's facial expression or tone of voice or body language or implicit meanings in their language for example but they can see you know that that physical data whether it's mathematical or musical or, um, physical patterns in the environment, in nature, uh, to a really extraordinary degree.
0: Right. There's a predictability in the systems that they're interested in and humans are very unpredictable.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: And, um, can be very contradictory. As you said, we can say one thing, but the implicit meaning and the tone of voice might, um, say something completely different. Yeah. And, the, the types of empathy, right, that we have. We have yeah. um, cognitive empathy mm-hmm. and more effective empathy, yeah.
1: right? So those, so those are at least two different components within the empathy circuit. So cognitive empathy is the, the ability to recognize what someone is thinking or feeling um, or to understand what someone is thinking or feeling. Uh, and you might, you might use facial expressions or tone of voice or you might uh, draw inferences based on what they've said or haven't said. So that's cognitive empathy. But affective empathy is the drive to respond with an appropriate emotion. So once you've identified what they're thinking or feeling, you know what does it make you feel? And autistic people seem to have intact affective empathy. Once they know that somebody is suffering, for example, they they're motivated to want to alleviate someone's suffering they want to go and help you know so that, so often they're very empathic but they just struggle with the first type of empathy the cognitive part
0: the interpreting
1: the interpreting exactly so sometimes they just need people to tell them you know i'm having a hard time and then they they know exactly what to do but if it's all implied through long silences or or facial expressions they may miss it
0: right and i think this is such an important fact because you it, it helps us understand how we can relate to autistic people better and help to integrate them yeah. better into into the community into the family into society yeah. to help them you know build that bridge be a little bit more yeah. explanatory and straightforward because they they do care right
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, we have to be very careful that uh, we don't stigmatize autistic people or stereotype them as if they lack empathy. Clearly, they do have empathy. Often, autistic people are, are very moral. That you know, they are. Um, they like rules. They, right. they they want to. You know, they don't understand why other people, non-autistic people, would deceive or play these kind of games of manipulation. They like right. they like people to be very straight and honest.
0: Exactly. And this is exactly the opposite of psychopaths. I think this is important to note because people hear lack of empathy, and a lot of us would jump into thinking of a psychopath, but yeah. a psychopath actually lacks effective empathy. Exactly. And and they have very much intact cognitive empathy so they have theory of mind they can understand what you're thinking yeah. and they use that to manipulate
1: yeah and even to hurt people you know um once they know what your you know what your vulnerability is they might exploit that so they have excellent cognitive empathy and that's also how they can deceive you know because they can make you believe that something's true when it's not they're really playing mind games but you know but they don't seem to have the, the affect of empathy. They don't they don't seem to care about their victims. If they right. hurt them, it doesn't it doesn't affect them. So they're almost psychopaths or antisocial personality disorder are almost the mirror image of autism. You know, autistic people, you know, the ones I've met, and I've met a lot, you know, don't want to hurt people. Uh, you know, they struggle to kind of understand all the social nuances in uh, especially in a group. Sometimes they're better one to one, but as soon as it becomes a bit more complex, like in a party or a dinner table conversation, you know, um, it can be a little bit more complex. And they might just avoid that and retreat into their own solitary world, into a world of objects or systems which are more predictable.
0: Right, right. And I wanted to ask you when you envision, you know, a perfect society uh, in which autistic people are. Well integrated. What does the society look like? You know, from early childhood in school, uh, yeah. all the way to adulthood in the workplace.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, let's start with early childhood, because at the moment, um, in many cultures, you know, the classroom is designed as if all kids learn in the same way, and all kids- everyone's
0: an extrovert.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, they, yeah, it's true. These days, like if you went back to the Victorian times you know, kids sat in rows of desks and they were expected to kind of work in silence and just look at the blackboard, you know, the chalk and the blackboard. Right. Um, you know, but but these days, schools are designed to be very sociable environments, you know, to, to, to learn in groups, yes. um, be very interactive with the teacher, a lot of communication. And for some kids, but particularly autistic kids, this might not be their optimal learning environment, you know. This might be their idea of hell. Um, <laughs> you know. I
0: personally found it exhausting to constantly be ha- like having to engage socially while trying to learn. It's yeah. two contradictory things.
1: Yeah. Um. You know. Now imagine someone who struggles with empathy, or particularly cognitive empathy, so keep keeping up with conversations which are very fast moving, and the social dynamics which are just changing all the time. And they're just trying to understand that mathematical equation. They might just want to, you know, go and sit in the corner or under the table, or even just, you know, in a in a quiet room somewhere. So I think that we could do a lot as you know, as yeah. educationalists, we could encourage schools to identify very early which kids like to learn in groups and which kids like to learn in more individual ways. You know, that description of of Thomas Edison. You know, his mother took him out of school because he was really hating it. He was being teased, he was being bullied. Uh, he, he he wasn't allowed to follow his own interests. He always had to just follow the lesson according to the teacher whereas a lot of these kids autistic or hyper-systemizers, you know, they want to choose their own topic. They want to go they want to go as deeply as they can. They don't want to just suddenly switch topics just because it's the end of the lesson. You know, once they're learning history, they want to just stay going deeper and deeper, you know. So... Right, that shifting gears is difficult. And also yeah.
0: they can reach depths in a topic that other kids might not be able to,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think, you know, the people who design schools need to think about... It's not like one size fits all in terms of all kids need to learn in the same way. We have to be imaginative and think... Maybe we need to take some of these kids into a different environment just to give them a quieter setting. Um, it's not that, you know, we want to kind of create segregation, uh, but we just have to be sensitive to those five different brain types we talked about.
0: Right. And, and to offer those opportunities, you know, that fit each one. Yeah. Do, do schools like this exist today?
1: I think um, there's... There's more discussion, certainly in my country in in the u k we have something called the National Curriculum, where all the state schools are expected to teach all of the subjects, so it's a very broad curriculum, so it right. doesn't it kind of works against autistic people who want to specialize very early. you know I've met autistic people who who love music or who love math or who love drawing or you know or science you know but they, they just want to do that the whole time. And what would be so bad about letting a child do that? Because who knows where it's gonna lead, you know?
0: I think I think that's also important in terms of shifting the perspective because a lot of times we can look at these narrow interests and call them obsessions. Yeah. But really they're, they're passions and they yeah. you can only reach, you know, that kind of yeah. precision and mastery over something. When you're narrowly interested in, in sure. it and invested in
1: it, yeah. and actually, you know, uh, universities encourage this. You know, sp- you know, especially in some countries where you have to specialize even at undergraduate level. I know, right. in, I know, in the U.S., sometimes the degrees are kind of broader,
0: right?
1: But you know, in many countries, you by the age of eighteen, you're expected to just pick one subject, and if you stay on to be a grad, you know, into graduate studies. You're going ever more deeper, uh, but I've met autistic kids who just say, "Why can't I skip high school and get <laughs> straight to university? Yeah, I, I just want to do one subject all day long, you know."
0: Right, and is this in any way, you know, an option today?
1: Not yet, but I mean, I think, but I think if we if we look at the kind of um, some of the tra- the tragic stories of kids. Feeling quite depressed because they, they feel they don't fit into to regular school, uh, getting bullied, um, not you know not being allowed to kind of learn in their own way, so that they leave school with no qualifications, and the, and if you ask them about it, they give you an, give you a, an account of how they hated school. You know, we want to kind of avoid that because that leads to right. poor mental health. Um, you know, it may be no surprise that the majority of autistic adults are unemployed, that they, you know, they may have underachieved at school because the school environment wasn't tailored to their way of learning. Plus, you know, maybe we should talk about the world of employment, that there are lots of barriers there for hyper-systemizers or for autistic people. Uh, barriers to getting a job, because often you're expected to have good social skills to get through An the interview,
0: interview. Yeah. exactly
1: yeah um you know employers are looking for people who are good communicators and um good social skills and maybe we need to kind of again educate employers we see some signs of this happening that if you you know if you hire somebody because of their strengths in what the job actually requires let's say it's pattern recognition you know, make, make the hiring process all about what's the actual job, rather than about social skills. That would give an opportunity to autistic people.
0: Right, because I think today the interview process is a little bit of a popularity context where we're really not measuring the things we should be measuring. It's Absolutely. really about the rapport that you're building with the interviewer. And some people are just naturally gifted at creating that dynamic yeah, but
1: they're not necessarily going to be
0: the best fit for the job.
1: No, exactly. So there's an example from your country in Israel. Yes, uh, yes. Because uh, you know, as as you know, most of your listeners will know, every citizen also goes through military service. But the Israeli army have created a unit where they're mostly bringing autistic people in because of their good pattern recognition skills. So they show them. Aerial photographs—you know, hundreds or thousands of aerial photographs—which autistic people might be very quick to be able to identify if there's something suspicious in the photo, something that shouldn't be there, that seems out of place, which could be like an early warning system uh, for terrorist activity, for example. So um, that's—I mean, it's—it's in a military context, but it's an example where that's an institution, an employer, if you like, that is. Uh, enabling autistic people to be included and actually kind of turning, well, kind of ignoring the disability, the social disability, but focusing on the strengths or talents to actually improve their efficiency.
0: Absolutely. And these, you know, these people with this amazing ability to, to pick up on the details, they have such value. And as a society, you know, to look at the population as a whole and to yeah. see you know what is everyone good at and how how can we let them manifest their potential in the best way and obviously and maybe, this isn't done perfectly but no to, no
1: but uh, but uh, you know i just to give you another example since that one was a military one right. I'll, give, I'll give you a different example which is near near to me here in cambridge in the uk there's a, a, a um a, a business that makes the best chocolates and they hire autistic people because autistic people are really good at precision it's a bit like the recipe for you know yeah. for cooking they follow the recipe to the nth degree and the chocolates wow. are really outstanding so the com- the company is called harry specters but okay. they but i just like the fact that you know they're they're producing chocolates which actually market at the high end of the, the chocolate industry they're selling in, in, in the best stores But, you know, because they are such high-quality chocolates, but it's all about getting that precision in what you're doing. And that doesn't require social skills. That requires excellent attention to detail.
0: Right. Chocolate is actually very complicated to make. And there's the tempering process. Yeah. You get the temperature just right so it's shiny at the end. (laughs) Um, It's a a very important uh, field to have. But, you know,
1: (laughs) these are examples of how... If the employer is open-minded, they could be including autistic people in the workplace, whether it's a a store that fixes bicycles um, or baking bread or programming computers or whatever. Just that attention to detail has its value in many different work settings. If the employer can be open-minded to support an individual, an autistic individual, into a job and then, you know, to find out what they need work because they may they may well need support, but that's their right. As a, as as someone with a disability, you have right. a right to support.
0: Absolutely, I think you know. If um, first of all, this work is so important because it really makes us aware of the situation and where we're falling behind and not right. properly supporting autistic people, but it's also drawing attention to the amazing value that they have. And understanding as an employer, for instance, to be a little bit forgiving of, you know, someone who doesn't pick up on social cues and to help them along and to, to find a way, you know, ourselves as people with, you know, intact empathy circuits to be able to extend a hand and to, you Absolutely. know, fill in the gaps for someone.
1: Yeah, so I think there, there are kind of two arguments you can use for an employer. Because okay. one, is, one, one is to do with profitability. That, so, you know, many employers will be persuaded that if, if their bottom line, as it's called, is going to be increased, you know, if autistic people are going imp- to increase productivity or um, new products, or innovation or efficiency, then they'll be interested. But the other approach, of course, is to do with compassion. You know, what kind of society are we wanting to create? Do we want a world where autistic people are largely unemployed? And we know that unemployment leads to, it by itself leads to poor mental health, and there are very high rates of suicide in autistic people. You know, do we, is that the kind of world we want, or do we want a world where people with disabilities, autism or any other, are still very welcome at school, at college, in the workplace, So more along the lines of inclusion.
0: Absolutely. And that
1: that does require a kind of uh, a different set of values uh, and some adjustment to how we do things.
0: Absolutely. And to evolve, you know, to learn where we're, um, you know, not, not accepting these people or not supporting them in the way they need and and to learn and to evolve and to create yeah. a society that is better suited for different yeah. types of people. Yeah. I wanted to ask what advice would you give parents who are raising an autistic child today?
1: Yeah. Uh so I think, you know, what we now understand about autism is it's part of who the child is. You know, it's part of who the individual is. Uh just as much as any other characteristic or feature. Um so once we once we accept that, you know, that the person is autistic because of their genetic makeup, because of their prenatal biology, they're kind of born this way, you know, I would say to parents, you know, just let your child be who they are. Don't try to kind of change them into being less autistic or non-autistic or or so-called neurotypical. Just let them be who they are. Just like in the old days, you know with say, sexual orientation. It was thought that if you were gay, that was somehow bad and you had to be kind of educated or socialized into being straight. You know, we now understand that, you know, being gay is part of who you are. It's part of your identity. Same with, you know, left-handed versus right-handed people. You okay. know, if, you're, if, you're, if it's part of who you are to be left, left-handed, why would society be trying to coerce you into the, fitting in with the majority. Just let people be who they are. And if if they're allowed to be who they are, which is all about acceptance and dignity, then people are probably gonna end up happier. And ultimately that's what we want. We want individuals who are happy being who they are, not having to hide their autism, you know, celebrate it. Uh, Clearly it's a disability, so also support it where support is needed. But the goal should be, you know, good well-being, good mental health, whether you're autistic or not.
0: Absolutely. I think that advice of, you know, let your child be who they are is good advice across the board, <laughs> whether yeah. the child is autistic or not. Yeah. And I think when we have that approach of, you know, letting people be who they are, we all benefit from it. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted kind of my last question. I'm, I'm very interested in why autism? What, what drew you to this field in particular?
1: Yeah. Um, so there's probably two or three different answers to this question, but I've been, you know, I've been immersed in the field of autism for almost 40 years. Um, part of it was serendipity, that um, I got a job as a teacher in an autistic School. Um, after I graduated from university, this was back in the 1980s when we didn't know a lot about autism. Mm-hmm. This was a school with just six kids and six wow. teachers. Um, the head teacher was very innovative. You know, trying to figure out what do these kids need, and I was had the privilege of being one of those teachers, and I just became fascinated by it. Um, she's called June Felton, and she's retired in Jerusalem now. But at the time, she was running at this small school in North London. Um, So that was kind of um, just early exposure to autism. But maybe also, I have a sister who had learning difficulties. She wasn't autistic, but she had very severe learning difficulties and physical disabilities. So she was in a wheelchair all her life. She had no language. She had uh, the mental age of a. like an infant really. Um, wow. And so maybe kind of I was socialized in my own family to kind of living with somebody who was different, who, who, who behaved differently, who thought differently. Um, so kind of many different reasons may have kind of led to my fascination with um, understanding autism. That's the, the kind of scientific side. But also what I've realized along this journey, is that it's not just about, as a scientist, trying to understand it, but also there's a, a very practical dimension to this work of how can we make the world more comfortable for autistic people so that we don't end up with these appalling rates of poor mental health. You know, The majority of autistic adults have depression or anxiety, and that's not part of autism. That's part of not having... It's, it's secondary to not having the right support, and as I mentioned earlier, these you know really unacceptable levels of of suicidality, either feeling suicidal, uh, attempting suicide, or in some cases, you know, um, completing suicide. You know, this is this is not the world that we want to create for autistic people. So my passion, if you like, is is not just the scientific one; it's also to try to redress, like something you know, what, what society has overlooked for a long time, which is that autistic people need a place, you know, um, with equality alongside any other person.
0: I think that's such an important message in general to be part of a society where we take care of people yeah. with disabilities, you know, across the board. Yeah. And I think. The mental health crisis that we're seeing, and the rise in mental health problems, and the rise in suicide, I see it as stemming from a society that doesn't doesn't value community mm. enough, right, and doesn't have that support of of that mutual support yeah. of being able to um, you know lift up people who are
1: struggling, and yeah, and also you know it relates to this this. Uh, Concept we talked about earlier about diversity. You know, that if you look at human progress in terms of cultural progress, you know, we've made some, hopefully, some progress in terms of gender diversity, uh, both in education and at work. And also in terms of ethnic diversity, you know, we've hopefully moved quite a long way from the kind of white supremacy model where we left out people who were minorities ethnic minorities. But I think we still have a long way to go when it comes to neurodiversity, kind of making schools more diverse in terms of recognizing that different types of minds need different types of learning opportunities, and also in employment, as we've talked about.
0: Absolutely. This, this work is so important, and I, I think that what you're doing is amazing in the field. And you've really brought awareness to the field of autism, showing the tremendous value that these individuals have, and really laying out a way that we can, you know, as a society, better support these individuals. So thank you for your work.
1: Well, I've enjoyed our conversation. So thank you as well.
0: Very much. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Till next time.